Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, today, we are running another conference panel as a podcast, but it's actually a little bit different uh, than previous times when we've run a panel uh, in that I'm not on this panel. <laughs> a few weeks back, we ran the panel that I was on at the Reboot Conference in San Francisco in late September, but I actually thought that many of the other panels at that same conference were really interesting as well, uh, and the kind folks at the Lincoln Network who put on the conference agreed to uh, let us uh, run any of the other panels that they had as podcasts as well. Uh, I'm not sure yet if we'll run any more beyond today's, but uh, we might. We'll see. Uh, so for today's podcast, it's the panel that was officially titled, What Has Big Tech Ever Done for Us? Uh, but was really, I think, a debate about whether or not we should be breaking up the big internet companies. Uh, the panel itself was moderated by the EFF's Corinne McSherry and the three panelists, uh, interestingly enough, are three people who I, I think I've frequently disagreed with on a variety of different tech policy topics, uh, but who I think all present interesting and uh, thought-provoking arguments here. Um, not that I necessarily agree with any of them, but still very interesting. The first voice that you'll hear after Corinne's is Jeff Mann uh, from the International Center for Law and Economics who will argue that breaking up the big tech companies is a bad idea and also that there's no evidence to support the idea that there's been any harm uh, from these tech giants. Uh, the next voice is Matt Stoller from the Open Markets Institute, who basically argues the exact opposite, uh, that the company should be broken up, uh, mainly because he believes that they are harming society. And then there's Hal Singer, uh, who it could be argued sort of takes the middle approach in that he believes um, there should be more regulatory scrutiny of these firms, uh, but not to the point of breaking them up. Uh, and his argument is because their current position is harming new innovators and new entrants into the market. Um, as I said, I'm not entirely sure that I fully agree with any of them, uh, but it is a fun discussion and we may do future follow-up podcasts uh, where I discuss some of my own views on all of this. Uh, I also think that this is a really important topic that is only going to be discussed a lot more uh, in the coming year. So I think this is actually a good place to start for anyone who hasn't been thinking about these issues, um, or even if you have been thinking about these issues, just to sort of frame a lot of the debate and where a lot of people are coming from. Now, at times, the debate does become a bit contentious. Uh, uh, and I should note, as Corinne will say right at the beginning, that to keep the debate and the panel on track, the panelists all agree that their opening statements are limited to three minutes and their answers to questions are limited to two minutes. So occasionally, you will also hear uh, the voice of the timekeeper, who I believe is Garrett Johnson from the Lincoln Network, uh, jumping in to tell them that their time is up. Um, so if you hear that, on the podcast. That's why. Um, separately, while this panel was going on at the conference, uh, behind them on the giant screen, um, there was a live poll asking the audience if they were concerned about the power of big tech companies. Uh, so sometimes you'll hear the panelists refer to the results or the changing results of that live poll and how it changes over time. So if you hear a couple references to that, that's why that is happening. And with that, Let's go to the podcast again, starting off with the moderator, Corinne McSherry, followed in order by Jeff Mann, Matt Stoller, and Hal Singer. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monarchy. 
Dropping the copyright police for pulling the wall on us Fighting and taking on all the plate and pay to troll Document the way that they aim to take control Scrutinise and do their lies and make them fold If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt To grab a shovel and dig up the tech If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt To grab a shovel and dig up the tech So here's how we're going to do this we're going to have fun. Um, so everybody get, all three get three minutes for opening statements. And we have a timekeeper who will be very, very strict, as will I. Um, and then we're going to turn to questions. So we have three guiding questions. Each of them will have two minutes to answer it. And I can, I can tell you in advance, they will have different answers. Um, and then we'll have uh, short closing statements to close everything out. So let's get started. Uh, opening statements. Jeff, why don't you start us off? Oh, okay. um, so thanks, Corinne, and thanks to the Lincoln Network for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, it's nice to, for once, be at a, a tech policy conference on the West Coast. It's not to, not to be the one to have to take the, the transatlantic length flight to get here. Uh, so <clears throat> um, that doesn't count for my three minutes, right? Shit. So... Um, uh, th- this panel is, it, it may not be evident from the, the setup and the question, but we're going to talk about uh, competition policy and what, if anything, we should do uh, in terms of applying competition policy to large tech companies. The question, the sort of setup, asks what has big tech ever done for us? Um, there's a sort of inherent implication, I think it's meant to be controversial, that big tech hasn't really done much for us. Um, and so I just want to start by saying that's, that's self-evidently, patently false. Um, and most importantly, those who would apply competition policy to take down uh, big tech, to break them up into smaller pieces, or to prevent other companies from uh, engaging in certain conduct, most notably mergers or vertical integration. Um, uh, There is no basis, there is no economic basis for applying that kind of policy to these companies. Uh, There's no evidence that their size or the concentration of the markets that they operate in causes any economic harm. Um, And uh, there's actually not a lot of evidence, not a lot of clear evidence that there's even concentration happening, despite the fact that we see these companies being large. Um, And most importantly, as I said, there's no uh, evidence to connect their size to any economic harms. So arguments have also been put forward that the size of these companies contributes to the sorts of social problems, some of which we talked about earlier today. Um, There is even less evidence, if it's possible to have less than zero evidence, that uh, these companies' size has anything to do with the potential um, or the the alleged social harms that they're causing. And that's not to say that we may not want, as as a polity, to adopt certain policies Um, to prevent firms, large or small, from engaging in certain types of conduct. Again, like the sorts of things we talked about this morning and I think we'll talk about again uh, after this panel. That's a very different thing than suggesting that competition policy, an inherently economic exercise, needs to be brought to bear in order to bring these companies to heel. Thank you. Red piece of paper and it scared <laughs> well me. To, right. to clarify, red is 30 seconds remaining. Oh, I got 30 seconds. Oh, I'm going to keep going. Um, uh, okay, so uh, most importantly, on the vertical integration point, vertical integration is when companies um, 
uh, operate at, at two levels of a market. They say they, let's say they distribute something and they also produce the thing. Uh, we're going to probably be talking about that to some extent. Matt, um, I believe, has has suggested that um, that companies, these large tech companies, shouldn't be allowed to operate in multiple levels. That they they should be vertically disintegrated. Uh, Hal has proposed a, um, uh, a somewhat less radical solution that is itself also rooted in the presumption Time. that vertical integration is a problem. And I'm here to tell you that not only is it not a problem, it's actually a benefit. Well, okay, thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm really excited to, to talk and to hear what you guys have to say. And I've, I've learned a lot so far. Um, so I have a slightly different perspective. So I, I think that the way we structure our markets is about social choices. And I'm going to start off with a quote from Eric Garcetti, who is the mayor of Los Angeles and one of approximately 5,000 people who is going to run for president. (laughs) So here's what he said when he was asked about tech concentration. I don't fear it, and I don't oppose it. I want to try to help guide it. Now, you see this kind of vision on both sides of the aisle. Look at all that great power that you've concentrated. I'd love to use some of that for my own objectives. That's what you see in politics right now. And I, I just want to say that I think that that is un-American. If there is a founding slogan of America, you could do worse than, find, than, than use the one no taxation without representation. And the reason is because colonists didn't, they wanted to have a say in what they were taxed on. And it's important to realize what they were being taxed on. They were being taxed on, with a bill called the Stamp Act. And the Stamp Act taxed paper, particularly newsprint and paper used for legal documents. They were being taxed in their information markets. And they saw that as a threat to their liberties. Americans, after the revolution and during it, guarded their markets jealously, especially information markets. They formed a post office as part of the revolution to spread information. Advertising in the early 1800s shielded local newspapers from the state, and from the very wealthy. By, by 1835, Alexis de Tocqueville was astonished at the diversity of newspapers in America. He said, every hamlet has one. And he contrasted that to the centralized power that he found in Europe. So that tradition basically existed up until relatively recently. We've broken up AT&T twice, in 1913 and 1982. Americans like their communication decentralized because we fear a king, whether it's a king in the private sector or whether it's a a king in the public sector or whether it's one, as Mr. Garcetti wants to remind us, that is conjoined. So I'm for breaking up big tech and neutralizing their power over information markets because I fear corruption and I am for political liberty. If we allow the centralization of our information commons, and it has never been more concentrated and more centralized, then politicians are going to and are demanding that they be allowed to repurpose it for their own objectives. And that's what's happening right now in China. And that's the road that we're on if we continue this centralization. Last sentence. (laughs) So the question is really whether you're comfortable with that. Because if you are, that that means that you're going to have to be comfortable turning Silicon Valley into a giant censorship machine. And I'm not comfortable with that. All right, strong words. Hal? 
Yeah, thanks for having me. So I noticed we had a poll up back here. These are my, my notes, by the way. It's going to serve also as my, as my napkin. I'm schwitzing a little bit out of my mustache. Uh, but there was a poll up here, and it said that I think 41% of you didn't think there was a problem. And um, hopefully by the end of this, uh, we're going to be able to turn you guys around. Um, I'm going to agree with, with Matt that, that there is a problem. Matt, Matt touched on a very important problem, a democratic problem and a political problem. Uh, and I'm going to talk about another one that, that, that uh, keeps economists up at night, and that's the innovation problem. What, what I'm worried about is whether we, uh, by, by basically allowing these tech platforms to, to run free, uh, if we are going to create a climate or an ecosystem in which independent edge providers are going to feel that the playing field is so slanted against them uh, that they're not even going to uh, bother bringing forward the energies and creative um, entrepreneurial activities uh, to create things uh, in the edge any longer. You know, we, we've been down this path before. Um, there was a, this isn't the first time that a, a platform that was dominant in its era uh, vertically integrated into content and then started using its platform power uh, to take over uh, ancillary or vertical markets. In fact, it was the cable operators of the late 1980s uh, that got Congress uh, very concerned. There was a, a concern that if you have no protections, if you lean entirely on antitrust, which is largely unhelpful here, uh, to protect independence, that the cable guys could make things very, very difficult for independent content creators. And we said, and it was, this was a political preference, uh, in the 1992 Cable Act, which I think is the template for what we should do here, we said, we are going to stand behind independent creators. We think that independents have an important voice uh, to and role to play when it comes to content creation. So they created a set of protections. Uh, these are called the uh, program uh, carriage or non-discrimination rules. And what this does is it, it allows an independent content creator to bring a, a, a carriage complaint, a discrimination complaint against a vertically integrated operator. Uh, and if they can prove their case, there's a certain evidentiary standard, and I'll go into that, I think, in my second answer, uh, then they can get relief at the FCC. The FCC does this through an administrative law judge process. I want to I want to tell you one story. There's, there's a question. Jeff raised this question. Where, where's the evidence? Let me just talk a little evidence. Um, we have had declining funding, uh, funding activity in venture capital and tech, particularly in the seed and angel investment, for every year since 2014. 2014 down to 15, down to 16, down to 17, down to 18. And the question you should be asking yourselves is why is, is investment in these activities drying up as the economy is expanding? Now, Jeff's right. I, I don't have a causal proof that, that, that the tech companies are, are doing this. But I will say this. Elizabeth Dwoskin did a survey in the Washington Post, 24 tech investors, she asked, what do you think is the biggest problem facing uh, entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley? And the answer was Facebook can appropriate their functionality, and there's nothing to protect it. And if they can't give us an answer as to how they're going to get around the Facebook problem, we are not going to fund them. Impressive use of the last sentence. To <laughs> you guys have some long last sentences. It would never hold up in writing. Um, okay. Well, actually, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn to the questions now. And I think, actually, our very first question is going to help sort of flesh flesh out um, some of what we were just talking about. And I think it needs fleshing out, so I'm glad about that. So the first thing we want to do is talk about the problems. And the, the query is what problems are caused by the emergence of a handful of dominant tech platforms. 
Um, it, but I suppose the question really should be is what problems, if any, because maybe we shouldn't assume. Jeff, why don't you start? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, as Hal generously conceded, there's actually no evidence to, to suggest that anything that he thinks is a problem is a problem. I think it would be a real problem, an actual problem, if, if on the basis of what 24 people said in a casual survey in the Washington Post, we, we adopted policy that mandated the structural separation of large tech companies, for example. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that we should have a higher standard than that. The key problem here is, is not that there may or may not be concentration. It, it is, in fact, the connection between concentration and the alleged harms. Now, on the one hand, there's a real question whether there are any alleged harms. Uh, uh, Hal mentioned innovation, for, for example. Um, and, uh, and people point to, let's say, uh, Facebook uh, adopting uh, some of the characteristics of Snapchat as a, an example of Facebook standing in the way of innovation. The, the reality, of course, is that, that Facebook adopting the best characteristics of Snapchat is, is normally and traditionally called competition. Um, we actually think it's great when, when companies that come into the market have new ideas and push the incumbents to improve their products um, uh, because it turns out that people actually like what the new guys are offering. Similarly, at the same time, you, you can't deny the fact <coughs> that e even if there is a long-term uh, innovation constraint there, which has not been demonstrated, that at least in the short run, when Snapchat offers some particular functionality, it offers that functionality to, I'm making up numbers here, 100 million people. When Facebook offers that functionality, it offers it to 3 billion people. Now, if it's something that's really valuable, um, more people will, be, will have the benefits of this valuable thing if Facebook is offering it. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, um, the reason that's important is, is because there is no intrinsic reason why we shouldn't Time. have Facebook offering the best things that, that innovation has wrought. The only question is whether by doing so they're actually curtailing subsequent innovation. But as I said, there's absolutely no evidence of that. And, and as I pointed out, at the very least, some short-term benefits. Okay. So no evidence of harm. The premise of the question is just wrong. Um, Matt? So I could, if you have a direct, I don't really have a direct response to that, but. Well, you get four you minutes do, then. I, <laughs> sorry, what? Go ahead. No, you, uh, can, you can pass if you well, want. Okay, so, so. He's just suggesting maybe how once. Yeah, no, that, I was just, um, okay. if, if you have a direct response, I was going to make a different point. You know, so Jeff, uh, fine, I'll go. Jeff, um, uh, creates this uh, this uh, choice, and I think it's a false choice, and it's it's probably where I, I'm going to uh, part ways with with Matt, which is I'm not I'm not taking the, the position that that the tech platforms be denied um, entry into these vertical markets. In fact, remember I keep going back to the '92 Cable Act as the template. The compromise was we're going to let you go into these markets. Okay, you can go into content. Google can go into local search. Google can do maps, and they can do their 2 plus 2, right? But what you can't do is you can't use your platform as a way to artificially slant the playing field so that you can leverage your power into the ancillary markets. You cannot discriminate uh, in favor of your own and against, uh, against rivals that are similarly situated purely uh, by virtue of the lack of... Of, of affiliation. So I, I, don't wanna, I don't want you to think that, that I, um, I'm standing for a position that says that Facebook can't ever go out and see something and bring it in or Google can't, can't do it either. What I'm, what, what I'm objecting to 
uh, is the vertical integration followed by discrimination, right? The, the compromise that, that we came up with in 92, which I think would be the right one again here, is go into those vertical markets, innovate and do whatever you want, but you can't, you can't use your platform. We read yesterday in the, in the New York Times, Amazon can't track where people are buying, what people are buying, right, and then decide to blow up that vertical and take it over uh, on their own. Uh, so my view is that, that the problem is that we have transitioned into an economy where uh, rather than competing within markets to serve customers or suppliers or workers and, and, and bidding uh, in markets to improve um, products, we have transitioned to an economy where companies are increasingly competing over markets. So they compete to control. They're not competing... Um, uh, against each other for, uh, to actually create better products and services. Um, they're competing to become monopolies, and this is a pretty standard, well-understood phenomenon. And, and I just, the traditional way that Americans understood monopoly was as a private government with coercive power and control over that market or series of interlinked markets. And that's the way that you have to look at Amazon, Facebook, Google. There's a, the whole host of companies that are doing this. These are the most sort of assertive, most aggressive. These are the ones that were, are newer, and so they were born native into a different political economic context. Um, but to give you a, a sense of where Silicon Valley comes from, Silicon Valley is a result of an aggressive competition policy to make sure that we don't have a permission-based economy. So antitrust suits against RCA, antitrust suits against IBM, antitrust suits against AT&T, uh, government contracting, um, public funding of institutions like uh, the Internet. Um, competition policy has traditionally been focused on opening up opportunity and political liberty um, and making sure that old gatekeepers in either the public or the private sector can't hold back our desire to innovate and compete. And right now we have a, a really serious problem in that we have largely three institutions that are preventing that. Okay, um, I'm going to move on to the next question, but I want to do it in a slightly different order in terms of speakers. I'm going to start with, with Hal this time. Um, so I'm going to start with the person who might think that maybe there's a problem. So let's talk about if, if there is a problem, what's the solution? Or what are some solutions that we should be thinking about? And one that we hear a lot about um, these days is, is breaking up the tech platform. So Senator Warren called for the breakup of Amazon just last week, I think. Um, is this a good idea? Is this the approach should be, that we should be taking? So uh, I'm not I'm not there yet. Um, I'm I'm peddling something that that is a bit less invasive, which is a more behavioral or case by case adjudication of discrimination complaints as they come up. And let me let me try to express my reservation to to Matt and to Elizabeth um, this way. Uh, I I can conceive that. Google has something to, of value to offer in the content space. I can conceive of that. Just, just as Congress could conceive that Comcast and Time Warner Cable could uh, have something of value to contribute in the programming space. Um, now, of course, Congress simultaneously said that we think that independents 
are, are, are as, as much or even more important uh, when it comes to the source of creative juices and ideas and ingenuity. So we're going we're gonna to create a, a special uh, sort of protection for them. But, but my, my concern is that when you, when, you put a pen around, when you put a pen around Google and Amazon uh, and Facebook, that you, you might be giving up uh, certain uh, benefits for consumers that, that they can create. Now, having said that, um, and here's the subtle difference, is that, again, I, I don't object to Google going into local content, but when they go to populate the one box, what I, would, what I would argue is the optimal policy is that their page ranks should be run on the entirety of the Internet, not just on their own properties, but instead it should just be a, a meritocratic system. Whichever property is the best answer to the question, whether it's Google's or whether it's Yelp's or some other independent, that ought to be the one that populates the one box. All right, so, Jeff, is there anything wrong with that solution? <laughs> Not that I can cover in two minutes. But, uh, <laughs> okay, we're actually doing quite well on time. I think time, that's a no. Just by the way. <laughs> yeah, I knew you'd say that. I knew as soon as it came out you were going to say that. Okay, so... The debate so, is over. So, uh, it, 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 on the one hand, it's, it's true that, that uh, Congress did adopt Jeff, a particular Jeffrey. policy. I, I know, just because Matt has more followers on Twitter. That's, that's <laughs> It, it's true. It's true that Congress did adopt that that policy with respect to to cable companies, but no one ever accused Congress of doing anything that necessarily or ever had economic rationality behind it. Um, it, it is a policy preference and not one that maps onto. Uh, modern economic thinking, nor has it for several decades. So the presumption, uh, the problem I have with your position, which is better, of course, than than simply breaking these companies up on the basis of zero evidence that there's a problem, but but e- even the presumption that you want to adopt is not one that's actually rooted in a- any evidence to suggest that there's a problem. Now, w- one great example of this um, is uh, is the Google Shopping case, right? Um, uh, you talk about the, the one box, for example, and you would like Google to populate the one box with its page rank algorithm. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's not exactly what the European Commission said, but let's just say that that's virtually what they said. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that that means that you are essentially relegating Google to complete stasis. You're saying that even if they develop a fantastic technology that that has a discriminatory effect, maybe because they anticipated it, because they know how to develop the content that fits in with this this new ranking that goes into the one box. Um, uh, Under your theory, they can be prosecuted for that because it may have some discriminatory effect, even though, by by definition, the way I I set this up, it's an innovation that benefits consumers. The problem is that because there is no actual evidence to suggest that discrimination is bad, and in fact, where it has been studied, it has virtually unanimously found that it provides consumer benefits, there's just no basis for adopting that presumption, and you will inevitably be deterring those kinds of valuable uh, innovations. Because you went over, I'm going to point out that your poll numbers are falling as you're speaking. <laughs> we went from 41 to 29. Who pe- you, don't think there's a problem. You have a lot of followers, too. <laughs> All right. Um, Matt, apparently the Twitter king, uh, what do you think? I, I, uh, so I just... I want to talk a little bit about this notion of economics as uh, the sort of lodestar guiding principle. I think it's uh, appropriate to do that on the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis caused by two big-to-fail banks um, when Ben Bernanke uh, 
leading economist uh, a couple years before talked about uh, he he called our our period um, our economy the, a, a moment of the great moderation. Um, that was a totally incoherent way of saying that I don't think um, I don't think this is about economics, and I don't think that economists know a lot about what is going on, particularly in, in these markets. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think if you talk to most industrial organizational economists, they will tell you uh, that they don't have a lot of evidence as to what is going on here. And economics is largely a veil for social choices. It's intended to scare you into saying that you don't have the right to shape society in the way that you might think is a good way to shape that society. Uh, you see this all over D.C. You see it in, um, in lots of different places. But there's a fierce debate in the economics profession where everybody who studies monopoly, except industrial organizational economists who specialize in monopoly, but I'm talking macro guys, labor economics guys, are running into the problem of monopoly. And I.O. guys keep saying, oh, there's no problem here, there's no problem here. And really what's happening is that everybody in our culture, because of too big to fail, which is a slogan about concentration and, and the political problem that it induces, has realized that there is a problem here. And so we need to just start having the conversation about what kind of society we want to live in. Do we want to have a society where Jeff Bezos makes decisions about who can buy what and where? Do we want to have a society where Larry Page chooses what information flows look like Tom. in our culture. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to end there. <laughs> okay, I just, I just want to point out, Matt, that you were, um, you were fighting the hypo there because the, the question was, should we break up the tech platforms? Okay, well, so yeah, just... Yes or no? The answer is, of course. Uh, you know, Amazon... Look, Amazon is a, is a marketplace... And it also competes on that marketplace, and it uses its power in all sorts of coercive ways to destroy potential competitors and competitors. And I could give you example after example after example, but there is a reason you're seeing venture funding dry up, and there is a reason you're seeing massive regional inequality. And, and, it, and it's, it, to me, it's just, it's just kind of like, I can't believe we're having a conversation about whether Jeff Bezos is using his control over these platforms to serve himself. Of course but, he is. But, so so that, I mean, that, that is exactly the problem, that, that it is simply assumed that a vertical integration, that, that a large company is abusive. And, and it's taken as such a matter of faith that we're willing to, to literally break up companies on the basis of, of a feeling and and I, I'm not willing to suborn that. And not only that, I, I have to. I just have to say that that the consequence of doing so, to, of removing economics and and the judicial the judicial and sorry the economic constraint from uh, antitrust, is to increase the amount of political content, to increase the discretion of the enforcers. The alternative, not that this is actually true, but if it were, the alternative to Jeff Bezos deciding what you buy is Donald Trump deciding what you buy. The only thing that will happen as a, con not the only thing, but the most important thing that will happen as a consequence of giving the government the power to break up the companies it doesn't like is that the companies it doesn't like will be broken up. 
And today, that means Donald Trump gets to decide what that is. I, I can't imagine that you think that would be a good state of affairs. Um, maybe you think that eventually you'll be in power and, and, and you'll get it right. But inevitably, the Republicans will be in power again. And they'll do, it, they'll do things that you don't want. There's a reason to, to, to think that if it's a choice, I mean, again, I think it's a false choice. But if it's a choice between the, the political power of economic entities and the political power of the government, I would prefer political power among, among distributed economic entities any day. Hal, do you want to get in on that? Well, I just, I just want to say you're really underselling Trump stakes. <laughs> okay. Hal, do you want to take, take a minute? We're actually doing very well on time, so there's... I don't, I don't know if I have much to add on the, on the political angle. Okay. Uh, I will say that uh, you know, Matt went off on, on all economists, and, you know, and i got to say, as an economist on the panel, my feelings were a bit hurt. No, just I.O. Just I.O. No, I'm an I.O. economist. <laughs> that includes I know. And, and I actually think that there's a problem, so I'm, I'm your counterexample. We have a problem here, and you're not by yourself. We're with you on this one. Where, where, where's your research? Where's your regression? Well, I've actually got a piece coming out. I've yeah. actually got a piece coming out in George Mason Law Review. You but uh, with the regression, uh, on this topic, with the, is there a regression? No, 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 but see, it's funny you mentioned that. And how do you define the market? It's I, funny that you mentioned that because it's titled "When the Econometrician Shrugged." Uh, and and Jeff wants I to set up. This. Jeff, I even knew to, about this article. I know. Shit. I know. <laughs> no, go ahead, please. That was a mind thing. Did you see what I did? Uh, Jeff wants to set up an impossible problem. He knows that if he requires plaintiffs to demonstrate a harm to innovation, right? You've got a, you've got a variable that is impossible to measure. How are we going to measure people throwing in the towel, entrepreneurs throwing in the towel when they think the playing field is completely stacked against them and not getting funded? We can't even measure what we, what we are worried about happening. And number two, the next thing is anyone knows it goes to an antitrust court, which is where I spend too much time. You've got to connect the conduct, the discriminatory conduct, to this impossible to measure variable of innovation harm, yeah, right? You can't so, prove so that there if is that a harm. Is your standard. I mean, well, let me just give you, let me give you hang on okay. a second. Let me give you an obvious there's harm. Indeterminacy. Okay, you guys have like one minute and line. then I'm interviewing. Oh, but if that's if that's your standard, and I know that you like that standard, but that means that we'll have zero enforcement. And that that is a very good place to be in if you're Google, Facebook, right? Uh, right? Or, or a consumer. <laughs> no, no, but you look, can't prove that it's not. Look, I mean, that's here's, the problem. Here's a very obvious example of harm. When Birkenstock refused to sell through Amazon. Amazon basically said, okay, well, we'll allow counterfeits uh, until you sell through us. And ruin, you know, basically that they, they sort of, we keep hearing they do this all the time. They just ruin your brand if they don't sell through. That's just coercive behavior. I mean, like this, this isn't like hard. This is, there is plenty of evidence. There's, you know, maybe it's hard to make models of this or maybe it's not, but you can just talk to people who've been screwed over and over and over. This is not particularly, even big guys are getting screwed over and over and over and people have rights. It's not just about consumers, it's producers, it's innovators. People have rights beyond just what Jeff Bezos chooses to give them. Okay. So, so, um, let me just take it down a little bit of a notch because no, no this is super interesting and there's a lot of you know strong rhetoric happening here um but i think it's really worthwhile trying to dig into you know what are real solutions that are practical and also what can we learn i mean we have hundreds of years well lot <laughs> decades of various kinds of enforcement efforts and competition policy and antitrust efforts um, you know, we don't have to maybe work entirely from scratch here. So one of the things that we talked about as we were getting ready for this discussion is, well, 
you know, maybe we should look back a little bit in time and see what we can learn from another time when it looked like an enormous tech company was exercising too much power and shutting down innovation. And that, of course, is the, the Microsoft case. So the basic, you know, big question is, what can we learn from U.S. versus Microsoft? And I'm going to give an extra minute to whoever wants to go first and can give a little bit of a background on, on, on that case for I see there are people in the room who perhaps are not old enough to remember this case. Do you want to do it? I, I can, if you want. Sure, yeah. Uh, okay, so um, uh, uh, Microsoft, everyone's familiar with Microsoft, um, and, and you may not believe it, but there was a time when um, uh, Microsoft was virtually, the, was alleged to be the only game in town in, in uh, operating systems on personal computers. Um, it is true that Linux and Apple existed at the time, but, but let's leave that aside. Uh, and um, uh, and they, they, they were doing some things, they were alleged to be doing some, some things. There was a number of different uh, pieces of conduct that were uh, alleged to be keeping uh, potential competitors from reaching sufficient scale to become actual competitors with Microsoft. One of the key par parts of this was that Microsoft, uh, you know, sort of owned the the operating system uh, and um, argued that it needed to bundle uh, its Internet, Internet Explorer, I think it was called Internet Explorer at the time, uh, uh, with its operating system and potentially keep others like Netscape, Netscape off of uh, the system or make it harder for Netscape to be, uh, to be run on Microsoft systems. And the allegation was that, that Netscape was actually a potential competitor, as sort of as we've seen today. In fact, you know, a lot of, um, we certainly continue a move toward uh, cloud-based and, and Internet-based apps. Um, uh, and uh, the case was the case was decided against uh, Microsoft. Microsoft argued that they, there was very good efficiency reasons for what they were doing, um, and uh, uh, they were deemed both to be a monopolist in a well-defined market. Importantly, and important to my actual answer to this is that it was it was it was determined that there was um, a barrier to entry in this market. It's important for doctrinal purposes that you have a barrier to, to entry in order to be able to allegedly exercise this market power. Otherwise, people will come in and compete that power away. And in this case, the, the barrier was the so-called applications barrier to entry. Um, and, and the idea was that, that Microsoft, by being so large, um, uh, basically was the only place that uh, the applica uh, developers wanted to develop applications for. Uh, a new startup might come along, um, but there was just no, there was no return in, in developing applications for that, that new competitor, um, but there was massive return if you could get yourself on this massively dominant um, uh, platform. Uh, so that was really crucial to the case. Now, this is my my lesson from this case is how little we actually know when we try to intervene in these complicated markets. And um, and I, I'm going to focus on this one. There are a lot of lessons to take from Microsoft, but this one lesson is um, that we the court ruled, the court determined that this application's barrier to entry was, in fact, a barrier, that Microsoft didn't have to bear the cost of trying to compete with a Microsoft to get access to these developers, but everyone who came along behind them did. The problem is the court didn't look at the other side of the equation. Microsoft didn't have to face an incumbent with command of all of the developers in the market, but it did have to face a market with no developers. It literally created, from scratch, 
not entirely from scratch, computers existed, of course, but it virtually created from scratch the an entire ecosystem around app develop, development. Now, today, it's a, it's a booming part of our economy, and in this part of the country, of course, it is, it is like the lifeblood, right? Um, to criticize Microsoft, to, to, to bring the, the power of the state to bear upon Microsoft on the basis of the, the alleged harms created by this application's ecosystem completely denies and completely ignores what may have been unknown at the time, but the massive benefits conferred on everyone subsequently, including, by the way, its competitors. So its competitors come along, or potential competitors, and they may have faced the difficulty of getting application developers to, to develop apps for their platform, but they also faced a world in which there were application developers, in which there were schools that were educating people to become application developers, in which people understood what an app was and how it functioned on a, a platform like the PC. All of that stuff were things that Microsoft didn't have the benefit of, and everyone who came along afterward did. And yet, the decision was made with zero recognition Time. that that existed. I think that's a huge problem, and it suggests that we may very well have gotten the case wrong. And there's any number Jeff of other things. monopolizing the platform. Well, I, 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 <laughs> thought, I thought we all got to our last sentence. I mean, my sentences may go on for 20 minutes, but it's one sentence. Um, uh, we may... It points up the fact that that these are complicated markets, and we are trying to predict future the, the, the future and the future of innovation and things that are very hard to predict, um, but we often get it wrong. Okay. Uh, Matt? So that's one version of the story. Um, this, this Microsoft had an operating system monopoly from, you know, basically the early 80s for a variety of reasons. Um, and they used that to choke out competitors systematically in the 80s and 90s. And they were, in 95, Bill Gates realized uh, the internet was going to be a big thing. And he wrote a memo saying, we've got to dominate the internet. They tried to buy into it. And the DOJ stepped in and said, no, because they thought into it at the time was going to lead to e-commerce. Um, and, uh, and then they saw this company, Netscape, create this entirely new uh, gatekeeping device to this entirely new ecosystem of, of the World Wide Web. And... Um, uh, and they they killed it. That was that was what Bill Gates did. And he in the trial, and there's a sort of ex expression in antitrust that the trial is the remedy. Um, revealed that they that Microsoft was trying to uh, I think it was cut off Netscape's air supply by bundling the browser with this monopoly operating system. That was the goal, uh, and it worked. Um, now, because of the trial, and Microsoft lost, and then eventually it was overturned, but there were a bunch of different consent decrees. Um, the culture of Microsoft changed. So Microsoft had been systematically doing it. They did it to WordPerfect. They did it to uh, Lotus One Two Three. They were they were privileging. They were using their platform to privilege their own apps. They often used vaporware. It was a bunch of stuff that IBM used to do and was actually, you know, sued for doing. Um, and uh, and because of that, the executives. Right. And this actually came out in the New York Times recently. The executives saw this new company called Google, um, and they were like, "Well, we we kind of want to kill that, but." you know, um, we probably shouldn't because of this whole antitrust thing. And this, this is why when you had essentially the uh, Internet Explorer, which was a dominant uh, browser in the early 2000s, uh, and there were others, but it was a, it was a really powerful one, um, you saw Web 2.0 emerge. It was because the cultural change in the company that happened because Time. our policymakers said you cannot leverage your monopoly power in one area 
to strangle innovation in another. Okay. How? The, the question comes up as to whether Microsoft, the case, offers a template for some future case against, say, Google or other tech platform provider. Uh, is, it, is it the end-all, be-all template for bringing a, a case on, on grounds of harm to innovation? And so I went back into the, into the decision uh, at the appellate level, and I did a search for the word innovation. This was very high-tech. And it shows about, about 10 times, and nearly every time, I think with the exception of once, the court was worried about innovation to the platform, right? They were worried should be, right? that, well, you know, Jeffrey, I'd well, like them to be worried about innovation also. in the edge as well. There should be a balancing, right? Yeah. But, but when you look for the word innovation, what the court was really worried about was that if they were too invasive in their, in their remedy, uh, they were going to undermine the incentives either for Microsoft to invest in the platform or for someone else to invest in a new platform. So in that sense, I don't think it's the greatest case uh, to, for, for, for serving as a template. I'll also say that the landscape has shifted remarkably. We have not had, or maybe I should put this as a question. Does anyone want to guess? How many uh, Section 2 monopolization cases have either agency brought against a firm in the United States since since, uh, Microsoft in the intervening 20 years? Okay, I'm going to tell you. You ready? The answer is zero. Zero cases, right? Pure innovation cases. Jeffrey's looking at me like, Intel. No, there was price effects in Intel, right? And so the, the question is, why haven't, we, why haven't we seen them? And I put this to um, antitrust scholars, and the answer, they say, is the standards haven't changed, Hal. But what's changed is that the courts have increasingly taken a position that antitrust plaintiffs must show empirically, demonstrably, a harm to, to consumers in the short run. And if that's the standard, and if we're thinking about a case where there are no price effects, there are no output effects, there are no quality effects, all that we have is this threatened edge innovation, right, then antitrust is just not going to be the template, the standard, and that's why I'm advocating Time. for a different standard, namely a non-discrimination standard. I just want you to know the numbers didn't budge while you were talking. Yeah, I have to say, we're starting to shake out pretty solidly. A lot of people who are in the middle have uh, landed one way. Or another. Um, okay, so so what I want to do now is is uh, this has actually been super interesting conversation, and I'm just a humble lawyer, so I get learning things. Um, uh, although I did intern at DOJ when they were doing Microsoft, that's interesting. Um, so I, what I want to give um, all of the debaters, the panelists, a chance to do is really now, you know, have a bit of a closing statement. You know, hit on something. If there's things that you you know really wanted to get to, and we didn't have a chance to hit it. You know, the floor, the floor is yours for whoever wants to go first. Two minutes each. I, I feel like I went first the most. I'm happy to do it. But if one of you wants to take the lead, you're welcome to. Uh, okay. I'll, okay. No, I'm, I'm, uh, you don't want to. I'll do it. No. Um, we can spend the look, next nine minutes just telling each other to go. No, no, you. <laughs> no, you. It's, yeah, we keep doing that and then we go over. Okay, it's Matt. <laughs> um, it's, you know, I think the, the, the fact that there haven't been any uh, antitrust, case, Section 2 antitrust cases in 20 years, um, maybe there's been one or something. like. I mean, does anybody believe that this economy has no monopolies? I mean, it's, it's just, abs- oh, okay, so, uh, like, uh, uh, well, all right, well, um, <laughs> you're, why, I, I forget what that is that you're wearing, but um, <laughs> my response is going to be to make fun of your clothing. Um, I think uh, it's, it's fairly obvious that we have, uh, that there, have been mo- there is monopolization going on in the economy somewhere. And 
one of the things that you're finding, uh, particularly because of the financial crisis, but because you've seen massive social dislocation and frustration and political chaos, frankly, all over the world, is you're look, people are starting to look for something that's wrong, um, that, that is causing our institutions to misfire. And generally speaking, when you're looking for something that's causing institutions to misfire in pretty much every democracy in the world, you have to look for commonalities. And the commonality here is, uh, is the tech platforms and is concentrated financial power. And that is what we're seeing is a, is a level of chaos and, uh, and disruption to our culture uh, and to our democracies that is incredibly dangerous. And I'll end with, with, um, with what I started with, which is what, what Eric Garcetti said which is that he wants to help shape and guide how tech platforms operate. Because he understands, like most policymakers and like Mark Zuckerberg and, and the rest of the people who are leading these institutions, that this is coercive governing power. And that's what we have to understand. The ability to dominate a trade or service is coercive governing power. That has always been the rationale behind anti-monopoly policies. Time. Is to make sure that that power is vested in the hands of the people. And if it's not, it is going to be vested in the hands of autocrats. And that's where we're heading. If we don't do something. Okay. Um, Hal? I can go. So I'm going to conclude with, with a personal story. Um, I, I've, I've lived through many of these um, enforcement uh, or adjudication cases over at the FCC, mostly against Comcast. Uh, the big cases that you may have heard of is NFL v. Comcast, Tennis Channel v. Comcast, Masson v. Comcast. I was the complainant's expert in each of those cases, and suffice to say, I no longer get invited to the Comcast uh, annual Hanukkah party. Uh, but uh, I, I, got to, I got to spend a fair amount of time with the owner of, the, um, of Tennis Channel, Ken Solomon, who lives out here in, in uh, California. And, uh, and I asked him how did, he, how did he create the company and where did he get the idea. And he actually flew around the world um, talking to uh, tennis tournaments and asking them uh, if he could buy the rights to early round tennis matches in these tournaments that no one had previously watched, or at least not in any kind of wide distribution. And he convinced them all to, to go along for the ride. He assembled these, this uh, bundle of, of early round matches, and then he came back to the United States and he sold it to DirecTV, he sold it to Dish, he sold it to several cable operators. There's one cable operator he couldn't sell it to, and that was Comcast. Comcast wanted the rights. Um, and, and so he, he was able to invoke the protections of the Cable Act to try to fight Comcast over the rights, right? And we got to a, we got to a win. It was ultimately reversed by my friend Kavanaugh. But the point of the story um, is to tell you that what we are trying to protect here uh, is that entrepreneurial, innovative activity. If, if edge providers, if creators believe that the playing field is so slanted against them, they're not going to entrepreneur the way that Ken did. And that's, that's what I'm worried about, and that's the, the, the solution and the problem that, that we're trying to solve here. So um, let, me, let me just take up Hal's example, and since we already talked about this, you know where I'm going. Um, uh, 
by its own terms, I don't think it demonstrates what Hal thinks it demonstrates. So his his friend flew around the world buying up these rights and then went to cable operators to, to sell the, bundle them and sell them. What Hal left out of that story, I don't think intentionally, was that he, he did that as a channel. He created a channel and wanted access to the, the program uh, uh, tier. Well, he wanted access to the higher level, the, the uh, wider access tiers uh, of programming on these cable channels. I think that it's, um, but, but the way Hal told the story, leaving out that sort of channel part, um, you'd be forgiven for thinking that what this guy did was buy up the rights and then went to, to these companies that were vertically integrated and had their own sports channels and said, hey, I'll sell you the rights to these shows to show on your channels. Um, now, I, I'm not saying that I think that I know that that's a preferable way to do it. What I am saying, though, is that your allegation is that um, that by not allowing this guy, that this guy would not have done what he did, innovated in the way that he did, if he didn't think that he could create a channel. But the reality is that he didn't have to create a channel. He could have done all of his innovation and sold the rights to uh, existing networks. Again, I'm not saying I know that that's better. I am saying, though, that it takes a a lot of the wind out of the innovation effect you're talking about um, uh, because now we're moving not from this great innovation to nothing. We're moving from this great innovation to something almost identical, but instead of having a tennis channel, you have ESPN Tennis. Um, the the other thing that I want to say, and sort of in response to Matt, is <clears throat> Matt raised the, the, the political power problem again. And he even made a, a reference to Microsoft and how Microsoft, there was a change in the culture at the company, um, and that, that's why we have the, the wonderful world Time. we do today. Um, I would argue that that's actually more caused, perhaps, by the, the application's pathway to entry that I talked about. But Microsoft is well known for also being the number one complainant against Google in antitrust authorities around the world. All of the anti, not all, most of the antitrust cases that have been brought against Google were at one time funded by Microsoft. And, and this is exactly the problem that I think we have, that if you open up the government to um, uh, the potential abuse of power by competitors, there's a long and storied history in antitrust of them doing just that. Um, if you're really afraid of companies using political power in ways that will harm citizens, then the last thing you should want to do is to make antitrust a potential tool of doing that. Okay. Um, All right. Well, thank you. We have one minute to spare. And so um, I would just close by thanking our panelists and have to say it's been very difficult as a representative of the EFF to keep my mouth shut through this whole thing, but I'm going to try to stick with the moderator role. I will just make one final observation, which I think almost all of this conversation until the very end was entirely focused on the United States. But anybody who's actually interested in this issue has to know that whatever we do, there's plenty of stuff happening in Europe and elsewhere where they have a very different framework for thinking about this. Um, So perhaps subject for a future conference, (laughs) whole conference. Let's thanks, 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 thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. To grab a shovel and dig up the cat. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and dig up the cat. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.